Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the truth you reveal in it to us, Lord. And we just ask as we come to read it now that you will open our hearts, that you will open our minds to it so that we may receive it, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my name is Mark. If you don't know me, I'm the student assistant minister here, and uh, it's great that you're all out this evening. And we're continuing on tonight with our series on Jeremiah. And we're going to focus on the signs of Jeremiah, the symbolic actions that Jeremiah used to illustrate the impending judgment against Israel and Judah because of their covenantal, because of their failure to keep their covenantal um, relationship with God. But before I start, just going to provide a quick recap on what we have done in previous weeks, just in case you haven't been out or or new tonight. Firstly, we'd seen how Judah were experiencing turbulent times and how by the end of the book, they would be in exile because they they had moved away from God. Christoph, Christoph also told us that how as a church today, we are in exile because society around us Christian values have all but evaporated. The next week we looked at the prophet uh, Jeremiah in more depth. We had seen how he felt that he was not good enough or old enough for the task that God had chosen him for. But God overruled having known Jeremiah before birth. Jeremiah was was the man for God's job. In the third and fourth weeks, we had seen how Jeremiah confronted the people of Judah with their sin, their covenantal unfaithfulness. The people were going after idols and they were blatantly sinning against God. They hated the words of false prophets, living in a false sense of security and hope, thinking that they were untouchable. They believed that no matter how they lived, that God would still bless them with uh, his covenantal promise and that he would never allow Jerusalem the temple of the Lord to be taken, but how wrong they were. And last time, Philip led us through Jeremiah's laments. Jeremiah lamented how Judah had attacked and slandered him, God's prophet, for the, because of the harsh message he delivered to them. The people disliked him because uh, the, he had condemned them for their sinful lifestyle and because they had moved away from God and they had failed to repent from their sins and turn back to the living God. But Philip also concluded by showing us that the, there are glimmers of hope in Jeremiah's laments. And so much after punishment, God will restore his people so that good always triumphs over evil. So what are the signs of judgment that Jeremiah had to share with the people of Judah? In chapters 13 to 24, there are seven of these recorded. Firstly, the linen belt, or the loincloth. And secondly, the Lord will not relent. Thirdly, no marriage. Fourthly, the broken pot. Uh, sorry, fourthly, the potter. Fifthly, the broken pot. Sixthly, prophets, profit in stocks. And lastly, the basket of figs. Now, tonight we don't have time to look at all seven, and we're going to focus on the two that uh, Lisa had read for us earlier, the potter, uh, sorry, the linen belt and the potter. But I feel that I still need to mention the other five. I feel that we can't just gloss over those. But as I mentioned at the start, each of these stories illustrate how God will punish an unrepentant, proud nation. In Jeremiah chapter 15, verses 1 to 10, 
It shows us that God will not relent from his judgment on Israel and Judah because of their unfaithfulness and their unrepentant ways. Unlike when Moses and God were the mediators, intercessors, sorry, when Moses and Samuel were the intercessors between God and Israel, and their prayers managed to save a sinful community from total destruction, Israel and Judah will now experience plague, battle, starvation and exile because their prayer is ineffective because they are unrepentant and they are unfaithful to God. In Jeremiah chapter 16 verses 1 to 13 we read that God commands Jeremiah not to marry and have children because judgment is coming and soon many parents and children will die. In Jeremiah chapter 19 we read that God commanded Jeremiah to buy a pot and go out and break it in front of the people. Israel and Judah had wrongly believed that God would protect them and preserve them no matter how they behaved. But this visual action of Jeremiah showed them that their thoughts were misguided. They may believe that they had a deal with God that cannot be broken, but Jeremiah in this action informs them that God will indeed break them and Jerusalem. In the, first first six, uh, verse, in the first six verses of Jeremiah 20, we read an account of Jeremiah's arrest and public torture at the hands of Pashur, who was the, the head of the temple and prophecy police. Pashur didn't like the message foretelling uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. But later Pashur's lies and his evil deeds would be punished with death. This prophecy is also important for Judah and for Israel in terms that the instrument that God will use as their divine uh, punishment uh, or judgment is, uh, we're told who it is here, and it is Babylon. Finally, with the basket of figs, in this passage of scripture, Jeremiah sees a vision with the surprising message that God will work out his plans for the future uh, through those of his people who are in exile in Babylon. They're identified as being the good figs, while those that have been left behind in, in Israel and another remnant who are in Egypt, they're the bad figs and they will face destruction. So in terms of tonight, I want us to firstly focus on uh, Jeremiah chapter 13, verses one to 10, uh, which is the parable of the linen belt. As we have previously learned, Israel and Judah are under the judgment of God for having violated their covenant with him. In chapter 13, this violation and judgment is acted out in a parable like story of a linen cloth, or of a, sorry, of a linen belt. In this story, God instructs Jeremiah to go out and buy a, a belt. And this item of clothing would definitely not have been part of uh, the prophetic uh, person's wardrobe. It was more likely to be reserved for the priestly or the kingly person. So when Jeremiah put it on, this belt that was bright and clean would have stood out in stark contrast to the old robes that would have been beneath it. And it would have been the ultimate accessory to grab everyone's attention. But we then go on and we read that after Jeremiah bought it, that the Lord told them to to go to remove it and take it to the banks of the Parat and hide it there. But as we know, a belt is made, it is made to be worn. 
It is supposed to cling round the waist, provide support. It is not supposed to be buried in the ground. But then we, re- we go on and we read that when Jeremiah was told to go back and dig up the belt, that he unsurprisingly found it ruined. It was no longer fit for purpose. So just as this linen cloth was supposed to be bound to the wearer, Israel and Judah were formed by God to be bound to him. But sadly, they had not fulfilled that. They did not cling to him. The verb here used in verse 11 is the back in Hebrew. And this is the same word that is used in Genesis 2 to describe the man who leaves his parents to be united with his wife and to, be, to become one flesh. This is the intimate relationship that Judah was supposed to have with God. They were intended to have that closeness with God, but they failed to. So as with any parable, there's always a spiritual meaning behind any story. And here with the story of the linen belt, uh, we find that the proper state of the linen belt is it's supposed to be a, a beautiful item adorned to the body put round the waist. But due to its neglect, it has deteriorated in the ground. It is now conceivably the worst garment possible. It is useless. Like the linen belt, Judah, they are no longer fit for purpose. Uh, they have turned from the living God to serve idols and they are engaging in a sinful way of living. You know, God, he wanted and he still wants his people to be the very best for him. And we, just like Judah, are formed for God's renown, for his praise and for his honour. We are to be bright and clean. He wants us to glorify him. And when we do that, he wants to take pride in us and show us off like a beautiful belt around his waist. Know that the shorter catechism of the Presbyterian Church is something that is, isn't utilised much now as a discipleship tool. But the first question in the Shorter Catechism is a very important one, and it is one that we must understand. What is our chief end? And it is one we must get right. As many will know, our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And when we fail to live for God and glorify him, we are not fit for purpose. And we are about as much use as a belt that is buried in the ground. When we are full of pride like Israel and Judah had been, believing it is our right to behave as we feel fit and not as how God sees fit, God will deal with us. And just like that sinful nation, our pride will be stripped away. The story here raises a question as to whether or not God would reject and disown his own people. We have seen that the answer here is most definitely yes, he will. If God's people fail to cling to him, to be bound to him, to keep themselves clean from their sin, if they continue on in their refusal to hear his word and chase after other gods, defiling themselves to the point of being useless, God will disown them. He will reject them and he will permit them to self-destruct. An obvious purpose of a belt is to hold things in place. And if we are no longer bound to God, what things may come apart in our lives. I was talking to a Christian man a a number of weeks ago, and he was telling me how the Lord had blessed him with a a good business. He had made a comfortable living from it for years. 
And at the start, he was quick to give God all the glory for the success of this business. He lived a comfortable but yet a, a modest lifestyle. Humbly stated that a, a tenth of his personal salary and the profits of the business went to the Lord's work. And he also had a nice sort of work-life balance, importantly prioritizing time to glorify and serve God in the church, and his gift was youth ministry. But through time, the reputation of his business grew, and along the way took many accolades from the business community, and he found that his skills were in much demand. And people, business people who previously weren't interested in him or his business were starting to massage his ego because they wanted in to take a bit of the action. And they offered him fast sums of money because so uh, they seen potential in his business. They felt that they could make money through it. So when the concrete offer was put on the table, he had a decision to make, whether to accept or to reject it. And he prayed about it. He consulted elders from the church, other Christian friends, his family, and other people from the corporate world. And all of them seemed to reach the same conclusion. You know, he had a solid business, but it wasn't all consuming. It didn't take up all of his life. They asked him if he took on board this investment, would he still have the same time to devote to serving God and enjoying family life? Would God still be glorified? And it very much appeared to him at this stage that God was telling him to be satisfied with all that he was given by him, that he didn't need anything else. But despite what God appeared to be clearly saying to him, through friends, and most definitely through his word, he had become swelled with self-pride. He believed the hype that people had told him about his business and himself, and he began to really appreciate that accolade. He was recognized as being good in his field of work, but soon he wanted to become the leader in that field. He wanted to be the best. And the praise and honor that had been reserved for God and given to God was now exclusively uh, kept for himself. This business that he had, it was originally set up uh, through the finance of fellow Christians because at the time the banks didn't want to know. But this business, it was becoming his all-consuming idol. He became, he became absolutely consumed with what the world tells you is success, namely a big bank balance, a nice house, a nice car, and a, a holiday home in the Algarve. The investors who were um, driven by their love of money had snared this man into the pursuit of their idol. This man who God had really used greatly in his ministry through youth ministry, he was now far from God. His relationship was diminished as, as this business of his grew. Suddenly he stopped his ministry, he was no longer involved, and through time he was non-existent at the church too. And as the church family drew alongside him, all the excuses were made. He only wanted God in his own terms. He still maintained a love for God, but sadly his love was greater for money and possessions. But as we know, recession has hit this country and his business was hit hard and as quickly as it had been built up, these investors helped to tear it down in an even quicker period of time. And suddenly this once humble, God-fearing businessman, he had lost everything that the world had told him was important. 
But in doing so, he returned to the greatest thing of his life, the greatest thing in life, whom he had shunned for so long, the living God. And in a short period of time, he realized that God had stripped him of the business because of his love of money. Now, this man, he repented of his sin, and God had, he realized that God had permitted him to self-destruct. But yet in his unfailing love and mercy, he called him back to him. And as we know so well from the Ten Commandments, our God is a jealous God, and he will not permit people to have any other gods or idols before him. And the story of the linen belt, it reminds us that we are to glorify God and to trust in him alone. And when our lives are devoted to the service of Jesus, we are like the linen belt around God's waist. We look great, but when we put our trust in other things, be it money, family, personal ability, political parties, sports clubs, or anything else other than God, anything we do is completely useless. If our lives are not dedicated to bringing glory to God, then our lives are really about as much use as a belt buried in a pile of dirt. The symbolic illustration of the linen cloth points to Israel's intended covenant relationship with God and their constant betrayal and abuse of it. They became good for nothing. Israel's relationship with God raises uh, pertinent questions for us as Christians in respect of our relationship with God, both at an individual and corporate level. Do we endeavor to cling to God or do we seek to go our own way? Do we endeavor to, in our part, to maintain an intimate and personal relationship with God or do we just reserve to, or, or is he just reserved for one day per week? Do we endeavor to glorify him by giving ourselves in service to his people? These are questions that we'll have to answer for ourselves individually and at a corporate level within the church. But these are questions that we must continue to ask of ourselves if we seek to be faithful as disciples of Jesus. The second story I wish to focus on is the potter. I don't know if you've seen a potter at work, but I remember when I was at primary school, I went to the Walker Art Gallery in Liverpool with my, and I watched a potter at work there. There was even an opportunity for ourselves to form our own pots, but I don't remember a wheel or much water in use. But unlike the group of seven-year-olds I was part of, when we watched the potter, she was completely in control and competent and skillful. She had great control of the wheel, and the consistency of the clay was just perfect in order for her to work it. But at some stage, every potter will experience the clay going out of shape or collapsing. But the amazing thing about that clay is that they can, it can be completely reworked into something else with just the slightest adjustment of the fingers and the thumb. The contours of the clay are changed and suddenly what was supposed to be a bowl is changed into a vase. In chapter 18, we see that this is exactly what Jeremiah experienced down in the potter's house. This symbolic illustration relates how God is completely in control. The potter's wheel is a lesson to God's absolute sovereignty. In verses 5 and 6 of chapter 18, Jeremiah states, Then the words of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel. 
can I do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. God's question needs no answer. This is one of the great rhetorical questions of the Bible. The answer can state, be stated very simply. God can and will do with us like as he pleases. And God's hands rest all things. Just as the potter uh, creates the potter the bowl, God creates us. And when we are no longer fit for purpose uh, through our love of idols or other things, God breaks us down. He is sovereign. We are not in equal terms with God, and we must realize that he is the creator, and we are his creatures. As we rightly know, the clay doesn't say to the, the potter, what are you doing? What are you making? But the nation of Judah, they believed that they could do what they wanted. They believed that they could turn their back on the Lord and chase after other idols, but yet they still believed that God would be faithful to them. Jeremiah told the people that punishment and disaster would come their way if they failed to repent and turn from their sin. Yet they willfully pursued the wicked desires of their hearts and the result was exile to Babylon and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. God exercises his sovereignty with the greatest of ease. Like Judah, we cannot resist him. One deft movement of the potter's hand, one spin of the wheel, and our lives are completely altered. As we are told in numerous passages of Job and of uh, Isaiah, and in Psalm 107, verse 34, our lives and our times are in the hands of God. This is something that Judah failed to heed despite Jeremiah's constant warnings. The main reason God took Jeremiah down to the house, potter's house, was to warn of judgment. But the illustration also of the potter also brings comfort. Because as Jeremiah illustrates, God as the potter can make something out of the most unpromising bits of clay. And that has to be encouraging for us. A picture of the sovereign God who refuses to give up in his work, his people, us. You know, but in his sovereignty, God is always equitable. He is always fair. He is always just. God does not punish unconditionally. Salvation is unconditional and grace is free. But wrath and judgment and internal damnation are conditional. They are based on the wicked deeds and desires of us, of people. When the Lord threatens wrath and the sinner repents, the Lord relents. But when he bestows, bestows his mercy and the people rejected, as we see here in verses 8 and 9, he will turn against them in his wrath. Though Israel and Judah would be crushed for a time, as Jeremiah prophesied, God reshaped them into a beautiful kingdom. The biblical commentator Philip Ryken states that the same could be said for us as Christians. We come into the world like so many clay pots. Our lives are pitted with blemishes and impurities. We are neither useful or beautiful. As clay goes, we are not all that easy to work with. We need to be created all over again, which is what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a sinner who trusts in Christ. He makes us something useful and beautiful. We are testaments to God's patience and long-suffering, his careful use of material, and his power of making something 
from failure. Jeremiah knew better than most of us uh, that God shapes us. Jeremiah had been on the potter's wheel before birth. Like Jeremiah, we are all shaped and formed by God's loving hands before birth. He knows our purposes. The repentant businessman whom I related to earlier knows what it is to be reshaped like God, to have those blemishes smoothed off. He knew the Lord's judgment, but he also knew his promise of restoration when he repented and returned back to him. You know, if we were uh, the potters in shaping our own lives, perhaps we would mold and shape ourselves very differently. But would we want to be like the Judeans who, who, who were intent on uh, removing God as the potter from the seat of the wheel? But we need to remember that we are only the clay and that God is the potter. Whatever difficulties come our way in our lives, we must, be, we must remember that he knows best how to shape and fashion us. And we will never be finished articles until Christ's return. And God will continue to remould us and reshape us as he feels fit. But it is always for our own good. But more importantly, it is always for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you will continue to shape and mould us into the people that you desire us to be. People who live for you alone and glorify you in all that we do and say. We ask that you will continue to form us both as individuals and a church into the likeness of Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you are the potter, that you are in control. We say sorry for the times we get behind the wheel and mess up, Lord. But we thank you that you are gracious and loving and that you turn your wrath away if we repent. Amen.